Star Wars 7x7 episode 3001. It does feel like starting over in a way, but hey, you know, got to start somewhere, right? So let's start with 3001. So the Andor series drops today. In fact, it comes out on Disney Plus, the first three episodes, right when this podcast episode drops. But we're going to stay in non-spoiler territory for one day more, just in case you haven't had the opportunity to see the episodes yet. And we're going to talk about the back half of the Rogue One novelization and and Cassian Andor and Mon Mothma and a couple other folks as well. Punch it. Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy and thank you so much for joining me for it. So one of the characters who has come up in our conversations, not just about the Rogue One novelization, but just even as we've been considering the Andor series and the formation of the Rebellion and who might be involved beyond the characters that we know about already, one name that's come up more than once is General Draven, who's played by Alistair Petrie in the movie Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. There are a couple of things about his time in the Rogue One novelization that I think are worth discussing, and he should be showing up in this series at some point in the Andor series, maybe in season two, possibly in season one, but definitely season two is the more likely scenario. So one of the things that Alexander Freed talks about in the novelization is how Draven sees himself as just stone cold committed to the idea of a rebellion in general, but not necessarily committed to what the rebellion looks like per se. So on the one hand, he's considering how General Dodonna prefers, you know, covert strikes that don't get much attention from the Empire or from the Senate. And he contrasts that to Bail Organa who wants to see some kind of immediate response to any of the Empire's atrocities and finds that even though Saw Gerrera left the rebellion because of what he terms strategic disagreements, there are people who are still on the Alliance Council who are sympathetic to the way that Saw Gerrera operates. But more than anything, I think his loyalty lies with the idea of a rebellion itself and trying to keep all the different factions of the rebellion together. So in his way, he's kind of similar to Mon Mothma in terms of how you know, they are both working to bring together all of these you know, different constituencies with one idea, knowing that they all kind of favor different approaches to things, but certainly agree under one banner, which is something has to be done about the Empire. They just don't necessarily agree on what it is all the time. And yet Draven is also not opposed to outright lying to Mon Mothma's face, as we sort of find out out by the fact that he tells Cassie and forget what you heard in there your mission is to assassinate Galen or so so when things go wrong with the mission on Edu there's a scene in the Rogue One novelization that does not take place in the movie where Mon Mothma and General Draven are discussing this and you know what's going to happen next and getting the members of the Alliance Council there to discuss everything that's occurred and what they've found out about the planet killer and whatnot but Draven tells Mon Mothma that the decision to send in the squadron to attack the Edu base and try and kill Galen Erso was only undertaken once they thought they had lost Cassie and Andor and that they had lost the possibility of extraction. He doesn't tell her that he told Cassie to assassinate Galen to begin with. He just says, oh yeah, the mission you sent him on? Well, we lost contact with him, so we thought, yeah, well, that's that for that, and so I sent X-Wings to kill everybody. 
everybody. Now, as for Cassian, the two main monologue scenes that he has, the one inside the Imperial cargo shuttle where he gives the, I've been in this fight since I was six years old thing, and, you know, we've done terrible things for the rebellion that he does on Yavin 4. Those scenes do not include any additional insights into Cassian in the novelization. Those scenes take place from Jin's perspective with Cassian delivering these lines to her. So we don't necessarily know anything more about his headspace. Although K2, in some ruminations while they're on Edu, says that K2, or thinks that K2 has seen Cassian commit acts that even Draven isn't aware of, and that there was a situation at some point where Cassian was standing over a body and with tears in his eyes and K2 offered to wipe his own memory so that way he could you know maintain Cassian's dignity if needed. As for why Cassian ultimately decides not to assassinate Galen, well it's not 138% clear. He's up on that ridge and he actually doesn't have as much time to get the shot as we see in the movie. It certainly looks like he has more opportunities in the movie than what's depicted in the novelization, but he has a lot of time to ruminate about Jin and about what she's been through, and I think he is equating some of what she's been through to what he's been through in his life. And there's a moment where he's looking through the scope and sees Galen, but only sees Jin's face, Jin's eyes, and just has to put the rifle down at that moment. He reflects to himself that he's killed worse people in this galaxy, but he was tired of not answering for crimes he'd committed. Then the only other Cassian thing I want to flag for you is something that happens in his, you know, narrative in the elevator on the way down to the beach at the very end of Rogue One. And he's thinking that he had told Jin, we've done terrible things on behalf of the Rebellion and his own internal narrative. Some he remembered now, Tivik who'd made all this possible and been rewarded with death, but most to Cassian's shame he couldn't bring to mind. He'd bartered his ideals and the lives of others away one by one to find a victory that would make it all worthwhile. So let's keep an eye out for that and see how Cassian fulfills that passage as we go through the Andor series. There's also some backstory on Mon Mothma in here that I find particularly interesting, and I think you might as well. There's a whole passage here which goes, At the age of 15, during the winter when she discovered smashball romance and her parents' profound imperfections, Mon Mothma decided to devote her life to studying history, decided to turn her back on her family's political dynasty and to spend her days in a cramped study reading thousand-year-old diaries and letters and cargo manifests until her eyes burned. She would be detective, coroner, and philosopher all at once, examining means and motive and cause of death for an entire for entire civilizations. And the passage goes on to say that she never did, of course, become a historian, and by the next summer, her moment of rebellion had been forgotten. Inertia and family pressures and a genuine love of governance had returned her to the road of politics. She'd gone on to become a senator, parentheses, far too young, she thought now, close paren, and scrabbled for votes and smiled and kept her head above water until she'd learned how to play the game for real. 
She'd campaigned for an end to one war and now, with even-handed hypocrisy, had built an army while trying to prevent another. She'd fled her home and a life to become the Empire's most wanted woman and leader of a revolution. And the last thing I'll share with you, and this also comes from Mon Mothma's own reflections, has to do with the Empire and the building of its military might. She reflects that uh, the Empire and its military advisors determined that the future of warfare was in large-scale naval weaponry in a fleet of battleships and battle stations that could atomize any enemy, whether on a planet's surface or among the stars. They rebuilt a military not for precision strikes, but for hammer blows, a military that could counter the interstellar movement of any mobile infantry that an uprising might field. As a result, she reflects, in the early years of what would become our rebellion, there was little coordination among insurgent cells, yet each on its own understood the need to obtain starships for military strikes and transport. And as a result, they would also need to establish an underground network of legitimate merchants and smugglers to be able to get starship parts to keep their modest fleet up and running. So I think it's entirely possible that we might see something about that in the Andor series as well. Those efforts to get ships moving, to create a fleet and get the supply chain running for them too, that could also play a factor in what we see in the Andor series. And that's what I've got for you for this episode of the show. And we'll start talking about the Andor series for real starting tomorrow. But for now, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it as always. And may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Star Wars 7x7 is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited other respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2021 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.